0: and be wet with the juice therein contained, so is the tangible reality of salvation purchased once for all by the only sacrifice who could accomplish the same, Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. He has redeemed us, set us free from that which once condemned us, opened our eyes to the glories of Himself and the beauty of His Word and given us the great hope of life, of re- communion, of re- uh, reuniting and communion with the holy God. Reconciliation between a sinner and a perfect God is possible because of our high priest, our sacrifice, our mediator, our prophet, our priest, and king, Jesus Christ. Now as we turn to your holy word, I pray that the Spirit would open our eyes to see the glorious truth that is there for us to glean, that our hearts would be quickened with a renewed and a new and increasing desire to love the principles and the glories, the promises, the commandments of Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that you would apply these words through our lives, continuing to change into the same image of Jesus Christ, our King of kings, our resurrected Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Praise God. This morning we have the glorious gift, the incredible privilege and honor to turn together to the Scriptures and to see Jesus Christ exalted there and to hold our souls accountable to truth. Would you turn there with me today in 1 Peter 4, verses 11 through 19? 1 Peter 4, verses 11 through 19. As you turn there, I'll give you a title and name. The title of this morning's message is Glorious Suffering. Glorious Suffering. There is suffering that we see, uh, There is suffering that is ordained for the Christian life, and we see this as a theme throughout 1 Peter. But this is a suffering not as the world might imagine, purposeless and meaningless. No, in fact, this suffering is unto glory. God's purpose is, in hardship produce an an end that makes every moment of endurance worth it. The cost of following Jesus Christ is so worth it if we but have the faith in the meantime and then see through those eyes of faith the glorious hope and promises of what God can accomplish through a difficult path in the future. Therefore, the aim of this morning's message is to equip the church by means of His word to endure fiery trials, That's a phrase in our text today, fiery trials. The difficulties, that's the way Peter describes the difficulties that sometimes attend the way of Christians, the church. But his word, that is the instruction by the apostle Peter himself to the early church, is as relevant for us today as it was then to equip us, to give us the necessary means, to give us the tools to endure even when trials are fiery. Would you stand once again out of reverence for God's holy word this morning? And let us consider these scriptures in your hearing as they are proclaimed today. Listen as the word of God is declared. This is the infallible scriptures. 1 Peter four eleven. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 15, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. In this section, especially in verse 19, which could be a summary verse I submit for the whole book, Peter reiterates and summarizes. One of the main exhortations, one of the main themes, the instructions for the church that he has listed, that he's laid out in his epistle or letter. He does so in this section. Those who took to heart, those who took to heart this epistle, those who read and remember the audience, kids, does anyone remember the name of the churches, where they were from who received this letter? Shout it out if you remember any of them. There's five regions that Peter's writing to. Young people, do you remember any of them? Pontius, remember? Anyone know another one? Galatia? Yeah, Cappadocia. Any others? Asia and Bithynia. Those are five regions in the greater Asia Minor area. This is a letter uh, that is addressed to kids. What does Peter call Christians in those areas? We are elect exiles, that's correct. This is a letter that is addressed to elect exiles, which is Peter's name for Christians who are living because they love Jesus Christ, counterculture to the values of their day, and he is giving them instructions for how to stand when their faith is tested. Now, those who took to heart this epistle would not have been shocked, disillusioned, or broken by persecution sure to come. For many of the early church, in fact, uh, history bears witness to the opposite, in fact, being the case. There, there are those among the early church who actually welcomed sufferings in almost an extreme ways. There are those who sought to be martyred as the pursuit of highest Christian virtue. In other words, at the time when these words are being written, the persecution was fairly common, and it would only increase. And there are those who even welcomed it as a badge of honor, they thought that to be persecuted was such a glorious end and pursuit that there are some who almost wish for it to be the case. And that's a stark difference from what we might wish for these days, isn't it? And you can err on that side. And there were those who did. However, you can err on the other side as well. There are many, even in the early church, who denied the faith because of the intense cultural, physical coercion. In other words, the high cost of sometimes torture and death, that was required if you continued to confess your faith in Jesus Christ. So these are the two extremes. However, between these two extremes, Peter advocates a narrow way. He uh, encourages the church and exhorts them toward a sober resolve, an absolute confidence, an abiding joy in every circumstance, recognizing that the plan or the decree of a sovereign God is so ordered as to bring about His glorious purposes, His plans, even through extremely difficult hardship. In tying his admonitions to the gospel at every point, the apostle reminds us of the purposes and plans of God that are accomplished through suffering and death. And he points us, of course, to the perfect example of this in Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is through the suffering greater than any man will ever know. It is by the death horrific on the, crucif- on the cross of crucifixion, whereby God accomplished his greatest glory as with respect to us, if it could be said, namely the salvation of all who had placed their faith and trust in him. You see, glory comes by way of suffering in the plan of God. And so this is a pattern and model for us, Peter tells us and encourages us. In this way, Peter joins the course of New Testament instruction, like the words we read in Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Maybe you remember these. We look to Jesus, according to the author of Hebrews, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. So it was the joy of the promise, the covenant assurance that God gave Jesus, that gave Him the ability to endure the bitter cup of God's wrath and drink it to the dregs on the cruel cross of Calvary for you and for me. It was the joy of God's purposes through suffering that gave Jesus the endurance to bear the cross for our sake, ultimately for the sake of the glory of the Trinity. So we share in the sufferings of Christ as believers in every age, and this is a staggering thought. Now note that we don't share in Christ's sufferings as a means of atonement. No, that work is already complete. That is to say, when we suffer, it's not to pay for our sins. Nevertheless, there is a purpose in our sufferings. Why do we suffer? Well, instead of the trials that Christ endured for us, we endure trials as well. And He has ordained these trials for the church as a means whereby He will glorify Himself in some of the following ways. To purify His bride. God gives us trials to purify us. God gives us trials, Paul said this, I believe, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, to deepen our dependency on Him. The Apostle Paul, another early formative member of the church, said that he despaired, and those who were with him, even unto life itself. There was danger that Paul faced on a regular basis that threatened his very life and limb. But as Paul realized the purpose, he had grace to endure. And what was the purpose, he said? To cause us to depend not on ourselves, but on the Lord. Our God who raises the dead. Have you ever wondered how Paul endured shipwrecks, beatings, stonings, being left for dead multiple times, mockery, banishment, countless court cases, and eventually, as history records, martyrdom? It was the joy set before him, the realization that God had purpose in these things, and realizing the benefits along the way, a greater dependency on the Lord. Also, growth and holiness... Also testifying of the strength of faith to others to produce godly character along the way. These are among the purposes God has ordained for trials, even fiery trials, that the church from time to time is called to endure. And today, we learn this principle from a man, who, kids, who wrote 1 Peter? Who wrote this book? Yeah, Yeah, good answer. Trick question, kind of. So Peter wrote 1 Peter, obviously. Today... Today, we learn this principle of God's purpose through trials from a man who once fell prey to his flesh, betraying Jesus, and later was restored unto powerful apostolic witness. So, that is to say, that Peter knows both sides of the coin. He knows what it means to capitulate under pressure, to deny his Lord for the fear of suffering. But he also knows that the glory of the Lord and obedience to Jesus is worth the cost of suffering, and we'll find in the course of our message perhaps what makes all the difference. With that introduction, let me give you a heading and three major points this morning to organize our thoughts on this passage. The heading is this. elect Exile Christians maintain the following. Number one, they maintain a fiery trial resolve, a resolve, a peace of mind, a a commitment a confident posture of the soul to endure, to get through a fiery trial resolve. Number two, elect exile Christians maintain a name worthy of the cost. If you bear the name Christian, if you love Jesus, you're associated with a name that is worthy of the cost of every trial. Peter says as much. Finally, elect exile Christians maintain a judgment forbearing posture. What does that mean? It is a posture, a station, a position, uh, a state of being, if you will, that is able to withstand the fiery trial, that is able to withstand God's judgment when it comes. So this is what elect exile Christians maintain. How do they do it? By availing themselves of the tools, the weapons, the armor, the means that God supplies, and among His means, perhaps chief among among, among them, we could say, is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and so to His Word we turn, in these verses today, number one, elect to exile Christians maintain a fiery trial resolve. Now, note all my subpoints this morning consider one verse in our text. So, there's three subpoints under number one, and they follow verse 11, 12, and 13. Three under number two, 14, 15, and 16, and so forth. Our first verse in our passage: Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, this verse overlaps with our text from last month. What Peter is saying here is that we are to be, uh, if you remember my outline, we are to be, have, uh, maintain a perspective that includes a level head, to be self-controlled and to be soft of heart and to have proper motivations. So this is what Peter instructs us as a church and the church at the time. And in this way, we are to be good stewards of God's various grace, God's very grace. His very grace is the different callings that He has for us. So what are the callings? Well, some are called to speak, some are called to serve. But whatever we are called to do, Peter says this, In everything that God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I wanted to open with this scripture because this verse gives us the bedrock of Christian obedience. Why do we obey? This verse answers for the glory of God. How do we obey? This verse answers through Jesus Christ. And look at the prepositions. First of all, in. you guys remember the preposition mountain." So this is like one of the few things I remember from my English lessons growing up. So you have this mountain, and where you are with respect to that mountain is a prepositional phrase, right? So you can be in the mountain if there's a tunnel. You can be on the mountain if you climbed up. You can go through the mountain if you drive through the tunnel or something like that. So prepositional phrases. First one, in. In order that in everything God may be glorified. The bedrock of Christian obedience recognizes, first of all, its purpose. Why do we follow Jesus? Why do we keep before us His instructions? Why are we serious about our Christian walk? The number one purpose is that God may be glorified in everything, in everything that God may be glorified. Why? Because He is worthy, He is Lord, He is King of kings, and we have nothing to boast in our own strength and merit of our own works and accomplishments, nothing of our ambition that to show for our salvation. Therefore, in everything, God is to be glorified. This is the bedrock of Christian resolve, of fiery trial resolve and obedience. Second preposition, we'll in again. So in our order that, in everything, God may be glorified. So in order that is, refers to a purpose statement. In everything refers to the uh, scope or the uh, perspective, if you will. So in everything and in order that, so scope and purpose... Keep this perspective, God may be glorified. And then another preposition, through. That God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And this is the process or the means. And Peter models this even in the way he writes. He never fails to pin the or to tie the instructions that he gives to the gospel, to the fact that Jesus Christ has enabled us through his death and resurrection to live a life in light of him. Uh, in other places, Paul will say. Paul will give a similar concept in this way. Looking to Jesus, so we look to Him, and as we do so, we are changed into the same image, even as by the Spirit of God. That is to say, how do we become more like Jesus? By beholding Him, by looking to Him, by recognizing that it in, in Him and through Him is our means of salvation and our inspiration for serving in a way that will be consistent with the Scriptures and would glorify Him. So we have, in everything, in order that, through Jesus Christ, then we have two statements. Uh, To Him belong glory. Jesus Christ is preeminent, and to Him belong dominion. Jesus Christ owns everything. In order that in everything God may be glorified, through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, I wanted to lay this verse out for you, and you could preach a whole sermon on those basic points that I gave you for sure. But what Peter is reminding us here is that though we are exiles, exile is an incidental designation. Essentially, we are the elect, if you are a believer. That is to say, God calls you to go through things, but not forever, and it's not always the case. We are exiles, yes, but we're exiles unto something. Unto what? We're traveling to a promised land. We're in journey towards the culmination of the kingdom of God in history. Exiles are not wandering aimlessly. We're not Christians who don't have any purpose or goal or end, but true elect exiles are those who keep before them the purposes of God in history. We are going somewhere. Now, I didn't really like The Hobbit too much, or I'm kind of a down on the Lord of the Rings. I know that's blasphemy in the literary world, and I don't really have a lot of grounds to make this judgment, to be honest with you, But the reason I couldn't get through the movies is it seemed to me like the journey was the point. And I just got lost, you know, in this kind of linear, uh, you know, whatever, sequence of events. And I gave up on the whole uh, project there. However, the Christian life is not like this. The journey is not the point. The end is the point. And this gives hope for us. Because the means whereby we can endure whatever difficulty the path has before us, whether it's the valley of the shadow of death or a fiery trial, as Peter describes it, is the end that we are marching towards. What is this end? It is the consummation of the kingdom of God. To Him, Jesus Christ, belong glory and dominion forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that America ultimately must answer to the lordship of Jesus Christ, or she will be judged for her sins if she does not repent? Do you believe that our culture will be broken by a God when he visits it in judgment if it does not confess that the sins that they celebrate are just that, egregious offense against the holy God, and that we must repent and turn to him and put away our foolishness and our wickedness and our rebellion against the holy God? Do you believe that? If you do, and if you realize that Jesus is Lord, even over our day, you will have grace to endure a fiery trial. If you think of yourself as an exile just wandering aimlessly, you won't have the same kind of resolve to endure the fiery trial that you in fact need. So remember that. The Bible is consistent from beginning to end. It's the story of the kingdom of God. And history with every event, with every detail, with every individual, with every soul saved is like a brick that is placed in the foundation and in the building, and in the city, of what God is working through history to accomplish His glorious end. And when we read in Revelation the picture of the new heavens and new earth, and the regeneration of the entire entire world as we know it will be transformed and changed to glorify Him, and to establish His authority and reign and rule and environment and habitation with His people forever, this is what keeps a pilgrim focused. The Bible has a kingdom of God hermeneutic. Some might say there's a pilgrim hermeneutic. No, I submit the following. Pilgrims, journey, exile, that's an application. But ultimately, hermeneutic means the primary framework to understand the scripture is the kingdom of God. And this is what Peter is emphasizing to give the believers hope. Remember that in everything, God will be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Keep your eyes on that destination, and you will have grace to endure. You will maintain a fiery trial resolve, if you will. Now, there is a means of grace that might be a little bit foreign to us in verse 12, or we may not you know, It's included in the list. In other words, if someone asks you a question, what are the means of grace? If you're familiar with that term, these are the most common answers. Well, the means of grace, that means the tools whereby God grants us grace to follow Him, walk with Him, and grow in our Christian walk could be the following, the Word of God. The Word of God is a means of grace. Worship in the assembly, what we're doing together, that encourages the saints. Right here, the table of the Lord, communion, that is a means of grace. Fellowship, enjoying each other's company under our Lord and Savior, loving the relationships that are forged in the common bond that Jesus Christ has saved you and me, that is a means of grace. But I wonder if you've ever considered trials themselves as a means of grace. Let me submit to you that they in fact are. Listen to what Peter says in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now you may have been sold a lie, a bill of goods when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. If you listen to what is popularly known as the prosperity gospel, you would fall into that category. You see, there are preachers who exploit the word of God for their personal gains and hold out a false expectation of what a Christian life ought to expect. And among those misrepresentations is the promise of wealth, riches, ease, convenience. In other words, if you're just a little bit more faith away from more success in life. And this is a tickling ear kind of message that has been popular in American culture for years and years. Did Peter preach that message? I don't think so. He says, well, if you listen to that message and that's what you cut your teeth on, theologically and biblically, what's going to happen when a fiery trial comes? You're going to be surprised. You're going to think it's a strange thing. But no, Peter says fiery trials, in as many words, are a means of grace. They're a way that God has prescribed you to be shaped into His image, to be encouraged in your faith, to grow, to be sanctified, to be strengthened. And many scriptures speak of this. Verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Why does Peter take such great pains to tell the church that they are to expect hardship? Nevertheless, when it comes, they can and will endure if they cling to Him because he knows full well that God ordains fiery trials as a means to shape the church into His image. More proof of this, 1 Peter 1. If you turn back a few pages, he says this, and we'll probably touch on this scripture a couple more times because it's so central to the text. He opens up this idea in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And here in verse 7 is a purpose statement. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter lays out his instructions to the church right from the onset by saying that the fiery trial that he describes in verse 4, he's referenced already, or chapter 4, he's referenced already in chapter 1 as a purifying means whereby God will confirm and strengthen and establish you in faith. James says the same on your own time. Chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. There's a whole list of what James says trials are are prescribed to accomplish in your life. Patience and and hope are among them. And and also, I get my scriptures confused, so I'll turn to one directly. In Romans chapter 5, there's a similar list. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes the conditions that are to be expected for a believer who's growing in his faith, recognizing that God has purpose in the kinds of things Peter writes about says in verse 2, "...through Him we have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God." Verse 3, "...more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us." So you see, trials are indeed a means of grace, character, hope, endurance, all of these things are produced, are they forged, they are purified in the crucible or the furnace of God's affliction. Number three, there is to be there is joy when we realize God's purpose in these things. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5, another great cross reference. And this one is very apropos because it recounts the story of the same guy who's writing in First Peter. Again, kids, who is it? Who's the author of First Peter? Peter? Peter is correct. In uh, Acts chapter 5, we have this account. The apostles have been preaching. They've come into conflict with the authorities. They want to make it against the law, illegal to glorify Christ in the public square. The apostles rightly say, they take a stand, we ought to obey, we will obey God rather than man. Now for this stance, there are consequences. Having endured them, they remain confident, they have a fiery trial resolve, and this is the te- their testimony in Acts 5.40. And when they had called the apostles, this is the bad guys, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left, that is, uh, Peter in this case... And John, I believe. Then they left the presence of the council, and listen, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. How is it that these men were able to count it joy, to have joy considering even the difficult trial that they were in, abuse, imprisonment? false accusations the rejection of the powers that be the tyranny of those who are in authority over them in the civil and even the religious sphere well they rejoiced because they knew that Jesus suffered for a purpose therefore their sufferings had a purpose and if god had prescribed that he be glorified on account of what they suffered for his name that was an awesome thought they knew if they listened to the scriptures well and they of course did that God had purpose in perfecting them, encouraging and strengthening and purifying them, as well as testifying to the glory and beauty of his gospel by these very means. Remember Luke 24? We won't go there, but just to recount the story, these two disciples are despondent. They're sad because Jesus has died. It's been three days. They haven't either. He hasn't been resurrected yet or they haven't heard about it. Oh, yeah, he has been resurrected. They haven't heard about it. They're on the road to Emmaus. And they are joined in progress by Jesus Christ Himself. Jesus Himself asks them, Why are they despondent? What are they talking this way for? I'm just paraphrasing the story. Their eyes are not open. They don't realize it's Jesus. Their eyes will be open by virtue of the scriptures. But as Jesus instructs them, he says, don't you realize that all the scriptures give the reason why the Messiah must come and die? And so from the apostles through the prophets and indeed in all referencing all of the scriptures that were recorded up to that point, Jesus shows them from the Bible that God has purposes in the sufferings of the Messiah. These people were expecting, these two guys were expecting Jesus to show the glory of God in a different kind of way. But when Jesus opened the scriptures for them, their eyes were opened. Their eyes were opened to see God's purposes through the difficulties, the trials, the prescribed suffering of the cross. And when their eyes were opened, oh, the glorious horizons. They recognized Jesus himself, and no doubt they went on to live an undaunted Christian life until the end, having realized their heart face-to-face with Jesus, that God has purpose and that whatever trials they go through, they can trust that God has purpose in them as well. Fiery trial resolve. Second major point, elect-exile Christians maintain a name worthy of the cost. The name of Jesus is worthy of any cost that is required for you to bear it and for you to proclaim it. Is the name of Jesus or Christian, is it worthy of the cost? Yes, it is. Nevertheless, Peter makes no bones about it. Christianity is expensive at times. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Of course, we're reminded again of the teachings of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter five, I'll reference it quickly. There's the Beatitudes. You remember Jesus says, blessed are you when... Uh, the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, for instance, the poor in spirit, and so forth. Towards the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says the following, Blessed are you, Matthew 5, 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. What is Jesus saying? If you suffer... Uh, Mockery and abuse, verbally or physically or otherwise, for Jesus' sake, you're in good company. You're in the company of the prophets of old. You're in the company of Jesus Christ Himself. Is the name of Jesus worth the cost? Christianity is expensive, but is it worth it? Absolutely, it is. And when you keep your eyes as one who sojourns towards the city, Again, the ultimate consummation of the kingdom of God and his purposes in history, you realize that the blessings and the promises of covenant, that city whose designer and builder is God that Abraham journeyed toward and we journey toward, you realize that that is so significant, so incredible, and so awesome that even death on that journey by way of persecution or martyrdom is absolutely worth it. Nothing can compare to the glories that God has prepared for those who love him. I have a question for you. Have you ever met someone, or maybe you've been this person, who keeps a safe distance from church and kind of distance themselves, and they might say something like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not really religious. And have you asked them why, or have they told you, or have you been, again, in this position? And oftentimes, people will give reasons like this. They experience some kind of trial along the way. Maybe it was friendly fire, so to speak, where they were hurt in the church. That's a very common one. Maybe they uh, fellowshiped in a church for a while and come to find out there were hypocrites there. Maybe there was a pastor who had a moral failing. Perhaps they had a family member. This is one I've heard common or from time to time lately. Perhaps they had a family member who is embracing or has embraced a biblically condemned sexual identity. And now, the church seems like a place that won't welcome celebrating that behavior, so they keep their distance. Perhaps they have just grown weary of the social pressure, which calls you, as we've said before, you know, a bigot, a racist, a homophobe, or a a hate speech advocate or whatever, for believing that the Bible is absolutely true and that the instructions of God's word and his moral law never change, and they are as relevant and binding today as they were the day that they were written. If that is your conviction, you will not be popular in this culture. How will you respond? Will you be like that person who kind of withdraws and tries to remain a se- remain uh, uh, in a semblance of spirituality, try to kind of confess Jesus' as association, but they're ready, But really what they're doing is modifying, according to their own terms, what it means to be a believer, what it means to be obedient, what it means to be in fellowship and following Jesus because the cost is too expensive. They've judged that it just isn't worth it. If you're in that place or you know someone in that place, I urge you to repent or call somebody who's in that place to repent. The cost of following Jesus Christ, whether it's Friendly fire within the church, whether it's reality, and it will always be the case that the church is a mixed multitude. You know, I often say it this way: Who is not going to hire a plumber for their home just because there's a hack plumber out there who happens to be a hypocrite, passes himself off as an expert, and actually breaks more things than he fixes? Does, are you going to say, "Oh, plumbing doesn't exist? Or it's not a viable enterprise"? How about a, you know? I work in the trades, so these are the examples that I think of. You know, a guy could build a house, and it could be fundamentally compromised, and it can fall in a storm because he was a hack. Does that mean you're never going to live in a house again? No, that would be a ridiculous assumption. But how many people make that same assumption about church? Maybe you're in a corrupt church. Maybe there was real problems. Maybe you had a legitimate grievance. Maybe even abuse took place there. But are you going to throw away the baby with the bathwater, as it were, because the cost is expensive? Sometimes, when you're, in, well, when you're in close relationship, it comes with the inherent risk of being vulnerable, you might get hurt. You cannot have a relationship this side of glory in the fallen world without the risk that you might get hurt. You might get hurt in this church. Is the cost of following Jesus worth, uh, that, worth suffering the possibility that you could get hurt in order to glorify Him? The answer is absolutely yes. Jesus says that you can expect to be insulted for His name and many other things. Peter echoes the same in chapter 4, verse 11. But notice what else he says. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And the message is this. If the reason that you're receiving the animosity of the world, the mockery and the rejection of culture is because you love Jesus sincerely, then weigh those two against each other. Is the name of Jesus, association with him, worth the uh, mockery of others? I know everyone probably in this room loves somebody so much that if they were mocked by most of the culture for the love that they have for that individual, they would put that out of their mind, they would not listen, and they would remain loyal, let's say to their spouse, to their best friend, to their sibling, and so forth. We understand this kind of loyalty. How much more does Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, the sinless man, the one who's died for you? How much more is He worthy of that undying loyalty, even at great cost? This is the message. Now, there are no, more than just one, there's more than just one occasion for offense in the Christian life. Notice this in verse 16. It says, "Yet if anyone suffers, oh, verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So Peter is quick to add this. He says, basically, that some of you say that you're suffering because you're a believer, but in reality, it's probably your bad character. In other words, if people are upset with you, the question bears uh, consideration What is the reason? Why are they mad? And Peter's instructions could be summarized as follows. Grant the world no reason to reject you, save your love for Jesus Christ. Give the world no excuse to hate you or to reject you, except for one, that you love Jesus Christ. This is important. Now, oftentimes, we might think that people hate us because of our faith, but in reality, there is growth of character, and there's a need for us to be more Christ-like and, uh, so, and so forth. So Peter hits all the bases in, this, in his instruction. And in so doing, he encourages people, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't get a persecution complex. In other words, people might, you might just uh, have a need to grow in grace and love and care for one another. And you may have issues in your own life that uh, people may uh, find offensive and so forth, things that you can work on in your walk with God, and in your character. Now, if you claim that people hate you just because of your love for Christ, and in fact, there's room for growth in your own life, you can be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain, if you, as you see here. So never, uh, nevertheless, what Peter says, or suffice it to say, what Peter says is that if you suffer, let it be for the right reason. Let one, no one uh, of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, but if you earn the mockery of the world around, make sure it's because of the name of Jesus Christ and only for his name. So search your heart and uh, repent accordingly. Finally, Peter knows what it's like to be ashamed of Jesus because of the fear of suffering. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but if you were to go to Luke 22, verses 54 through 62, that's one of the accounts where Jesus denied, I'm sorry, Peter denied Jesus three times. And in this moment, it illustrates precisely the kind of thing that Peter is instructing the church to avoid, to reject, to repent of. Peter was afraid that he would have to suffer because he saw Jesus in chains, being led away by his abusers, his false accusers, unto a death, a horrible crucifixion on the cross. And so what does Peter do? He denies the name. He says, I don't even know the man. He assumes a false identity, for fear of what he may have to suffer. And this was Peter before the Holy Spirit uh, invaded at Pentecost, if you will. And as you see this, you see a good example of what it means to be ashamed of Christ because of the threat of suffering. Nevertheless, this man who denied Christ three times was restored. And when he was restored and filled with the Holy Spirit, man, was there a change. What could account for this? Peter had a total, complete transformation. He says now in 4.16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. On that day of Pentecost, the fire came of the Lord and stood as tongues of flame upon each of the individuals, signifying that there had been a sea change in world history. From now on, those who would repent and believe would be fundamentally transformed fundamentally transformed, filled with the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit, the, scri- or the Scriptures declare the Spirit in terms, or they associate the Spirit in terms of fire. When the fire comes, how will it affect you? There are two ways. Number one, the fire can perfect you and sanctify. Number two, the fire can consume and destroy. In the case of Peter, The fire came at Pentecost along with the other believers, and it perfected them. It gave them courage. It gave them boldness. It gave them a word and a wisdom that their adversaries could not comprehend. It even gave them multiple languages to proclaim the word of God to the nations who were gathered in Jerusalem at that time. But there is a fire coming, and that is not always the result. It all depends on where you stand. And this brings up point number three a judgment forbearing posture. How will the fire of God affect you? When the fire comes, note verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he goes on to quote from the book of Proverbs, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Then he closes, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So how will the fire affect you when it comes? 1 Peter 1, through 6-7, remember that reference? For those who are in Christ, this is how the fire affects you. The fire, of course, referring to the fiery trial in chapter 4 which is a callback to this reference perhaps in verse 6 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those who have a genuine faith in Jesus... When His fire comes and the Holy Spirit visits them, it has a purifying effect. It has a transformative effect to make them more holy, to make them more Christ-like, and to encourage and strengthen embolden and give them a confidence to proclaim the gospel even in the face of suffering, persecution, even death. But the fire doesn't visit everybody in the same way. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. The fire of God's judgment came... And did it purify and perfect those who remained in the city? No. It came and incinerated that ungodly culture in a moment. Those who were saved were saved by the mercy of God as by force, being drawn out. Remember, the angels took Lot, his family, by the hand, even his wife turned back. However, received the same fate, and they, by the mercy of God, were spared the judgment. But when the fire came to the unbeliever, it destroyed them in an instant. This, as we've spoken, is a foretaste of hell. Fire is a cleansing and a purifying agent. Fire is a consuming and a agent of God's wrath as well. And so how will the judgment of God affect you? It comes to the church first, and if you're in Christ, it has a purifying effect. But then it comes to the world, and if the church is, you know, if it's difficult, and if it's hard to sustain, to hold up when God visits the church, and a deeper revelation of His holiness and glory... And though He encourages us and purifies us through these things, nevertheless, it is very difficult. The argument of lesser to greater is this, that when God visits in His fire, the unbeliever will be destroyed. If the righteous is scarcely saved, what become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if the way of salvation is paved by difficulty and hardship, when the fire of the Lord comes, those who are not in Him will certainly be destroyed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Judgment forbearing posture, enduring judgment. This is what elect exile Christians maintain in their faith and their love of Jesus and their commitment to Him and their trusting His gospel as their salvation. They endure the fire and actually embrace, if they're walking in the Spirit, the fire as God's tempering or it's God's purifying force. However, in the day of God's visitation, those who are outside the church will not fare as so well. In fact, they will be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. And ought this, should this not motivate us to be more clear, more emphatic in proclaiming the gospel to a world, to a culture, to unbelievers even in our day, for whom when the fire of God visits, they will certainly be destroyed if they do not repent. Now, all of this is a very sober uh, reality and wake-up call for the church. Peter's words, as we've mentioned before, come like smelling salts to raise the church out of their stupor and to realize they have to avail themselves as the means of grace in order to stand. How are they to do so? Well, his last words are instructive. They can do so by entrusting their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I love verse 19. Let me read it in full. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I took a class in expository preaching some years ago. An expository just means revealing the Scriptures on its own terms. And that's the mode of preaching that I seek to be faithful to and grow in as a discipline. And one of the concepts they used to illustrate the theme of a book in that class was called Melodic Line. And maybe you know this from a score in a movie. And typically in a movie score, there's a very simple melody that is intertwined from beginning to end. And there are times it where it's more subdued, subtle, and less, you're less able to discern it. And there are other times in crescendo or boldness, it comes to the fore. And so this melodic line, uh, nevertheless, ties the theme of that musical score together. It makes it one piece. It's sort of the binding element or agent. And you could ask yourself this question, what is the melodic line of each of the books of the Bible? And it's a fruitful question for your own study. So I submit First uh, Peter 4.19 is a good verse to represent a melodic line for Peter's words. Right here is the melody coming to the fore. Right here is the main idea, the main theme, encapsulated in beautiful summary language. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good." Who can we trust with our souls? Amen. Good answer. Who can we trust with our souls? That is such an important question. Now, today, at any given moment, there are millions of voices just on the internet alone saying, me, 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 me. Who can we trust with our souls? In this culture, a million hands, a million influences, a million whatever. People are vying ideas, are are bidding for our attention. You can trust me with your soul. Pursue this, you know, ambition. Pursue this career. Pursue this self-identity. Pursue this ideal. Pursue these sets of values. Pursue this political, you know, hope and so forth. A million voices are saying, you can trust me with your soul. You can trust me with your soul. Preachers are shouting that. You can trust me with your soul. Never trust a preacher who communicates hope in and of his charismatic ability to speak, his personality, the ministry that he's built, the books that he's written, or his intellectual abilities, and so forth. Only trust a preacher who holds out Jesus Christ through his proclamation as the only place where you can trust your soul to be in good care. Who do you trust your soul with? Well, in a sea of voices competing for your trust, I pray that the Spirit of God would give you grace to block them all out, to yell shut up to every single one that is in competition for the glory of the Lord and listen only to the voice of the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd is the only voice that you can trust to care for your soul. Every other voice is a thief, a wolf and a hireling. And they will exploit and abuse and chew and spit you out and lead you astray and deceive you over and over again. And it just so happens we live in a culture with a million competing voices. Even that's an understatement likely. So what do we need? We need what Peter says, a fiery trial resolve. We need an absolute confidence in the name, the only name worthy of the cost. And we need a posture of soul that welcomes the fiery trials with joy as a purifying agent, only that we might be more like Christ. Otherwise, we can become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and trust our souls somewhere else. When we trust our souls to a faithful creator, we trust our souls to a faithful re-creator as well. Jesus Christ is the Lord of Genesis. He spoke and the world was created. He's also the Lord of regeneration. He speaks as it were, and Lazarus comes forth. He speaks as it were, and gives you a new heart. Trust your souls to the Lord of Genesis and the Lord of regeneration, the only faithful creator, the only faithful recreator. And where can we find him? We find him in his scripture, and we find him pictured at his table today. So as I said. In the sea of voices competing for the investment of your soul, listen only to one. And if you need help hearing, communion is for you today if you are a believer. When you partake in this bread, remember that the broken body of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can pay for your sins. He is the only one whose shed blood holds out hope for your atonement, for your purity, for your salvation. Listen intently, if you will, through the means of grace, even at the table of the Lord today, and entrust your soul to the Creator and the Recreator who died to make you born again. This is the message that Peter proclaims to us from 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the message that the communion table proclaims to us today in these elements. Let us transition in prayer. O Lord, we thank you that you have given us means whereby we can be reassured and strengthened regardless of what you've called us to walk through. I pray this day as the communion table elements are before us and as we approach those who are believers in this room, that you would reinforce our souls to listen only to the good shepherd, only to his voice and to understand and discern the voice of a hireling, a wolf, an imposter, a deceiver, and to reject them all. Lord, I thank you that you have given us a calling so high and glorious to bear the name of Jesus Christ, to bear the name Christian. I pray that we would be made through your means, even through the communion table, the preaching of the word, the fellowship of the saints, yes, indeed, through fiery trial, more worthy to bear that name as it were, recognizing that ultimately it's Christ and his imputed righteousness that renders us holy and worthy of anything. And let us look to him today at his table and to be transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.